You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Welcome to Cloud9. You're tuning into the third of a four-part series dedicated to an exploration of the social and spiritual implications of Confederate and colonial monuments here in North America and around the world. Today, we're joined by Dr. Justin DeLeon, who is currently a visiting research fellow at the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Dr. DeLeon's work focuses on political science, international relations, indigeneity, and creative storytelling. Today, we'll be talking about the implications of Confederate and colonial monuments and mascots on people of Indigenous descent. Justin, a warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you. Thank you, Shadi. Now, Justin, could you please start by telling us a bit about yourself, in particular your educational background and research that's relevant to this conversation that we're going to have today? Sure. Uh, So right now, I am a visiting assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame in the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Uh, I ended up here kind of... uh, Securitously, I would say, because my background is actually in political science and international relations, but I was doing indigenous international relations, or you would say feminist international relations, and I was teaching at UC San Diego around race, class, justice, and that was in the ethnic studies department. Uh, And then I worked one year at Vanderbilt uh, as a part of a global feminisms research collaborative. And now I find myself here at a peace institute. Um, And one of the reasons why I'm here is to start thinking and to help the program to think deeper about what's called intersectionality and also decoloniality, uh, especially within peace building processes. And what that essentially means is just understanding that one's life experiences are complex, interstitched, and intersectional. That is, you can't separate one's gender, one's sexuality from an economic class or the types of oppressions they face. And then when you add the decoloniality element into it, my work looks at structures of oppression. So what are the structures which allow us to think certain ways, enable us to act particular ways? So my background, which got me here as a person, is that uh, my, my, my parents and my grandparents moved to the United States from the Philippines uh, at, a, at a unique colonial moment. And we come from uh, the indigenous regions where you have the Eta um, and also the Igorot. And we came to the United States. I have dual citizenship, even though I was born here in the U.S. And in many ways, we are a, a really racialized Right? We're racialized bodies in the United States. We are seen as, as people of color. But at the same time, I realize, and I've come to the realization, that I make my home here at the United, in the United States, and I continue on and carry on and replicate some of those same colonial violences of displacement that my family uh, went through. And so in that way, I'm both a, a settler, an Asian settler on, on U.S. soil, Um, and also a racialized body. So my work really gets at the complexities that are created by colonialism insofar as colonialism affects all of us for good and bad, no matter if we are black, white, 
somewhere in between, we're all holding up and creating this type of system. So my work really looks at systems. And so when we say system, we can think about it as, as a critical theory project. And I can talk about that more later. But essentially to say that most of my work looks at colonialism and the movements, I would say, of oppression. So um, and then, you, you know, part of that I'd also say is that I, I work with indigenous peoples here in the United States, particularly the Lakota Sioux out in North and South Dakota. And part of my work has to do with storytelling and filmmaking. So I look at how we can take traditional approaches to filmmaking and sort of craft or say re-envision a new mode of storytelling through film. Speaking about film, you're yeah. also an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had I've had the uh, opportunity to work on some great collaborations. Uh, one directly having to do with, I think, some of the conversations we're going to have today, mm, yeah. entitled "More Than a Word," and that came out in 2018. It was uh, nominated for a Back History Public History Award, excuse me, um, and it's about Native mascots in the United States, particularly. Uh, the Washington football team. And uh, it played at many different universities. It's uh, available through Canopy, which is an online um, video distribution uh, portal. So you can find that there. And you're also you're also writing a book I read on your biography. Yes. Um, so I've been working with the University of Nebraska Press, and they do a lot of work around indigenous sovereignty, particularly around creative forms of indigenous sovereignty. So I'm writing a book about visual... Um, sovereignty. And so it's called resurgence visual, resurgent visual sovereignty. That's a mouthful, but essentially kind of what we were talking about with filmmaking, which is, you know, how can we use story as a means of political visibility and as a means of political sovereignty? And why do we think of story? And this ties in, I think, directly to the, the themes of, of this series, which is when we think of story in film, we think of representation, we think of how people are depicted in the public imaginary, but then also we know that those aren't just products of the public imaginary, but they in turn inform and produce that same imaginary. And it's great thinking, oh yeah, it's a film, it's a magazine, it's a, it's a, it's a statue, so on and so forth. But those etch into our being and, and they create policy. They create physical manifestations of that skewed or narrow point of the world viewpoint of the world. So I, my book is essentially about representation. It's about film and representation. And how do we envision a new practice of representation? Wow, Justin, you're so busy. I can't thank you enough for making time for us today. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. It's such a wonderful honor to have you on our show uh, to talk about this very important topic regarding memorialization of Confederate and colonial ideals through dedicated monuments and imagery. Now, we've already gained a better understanding of the historical context surrounding the erection of these monuments during the very early and mid-20th century, and learned a lot about the references to Confederacy through imagery in our first episode with Dr. Derek Smith. In the second episode of the series, we spoke with Dr. Laley Mapayan at great lengths about the implications of colonial and Confederate monuments and imagery on Black communities and the psyche of people of African descent in America. Now, you've been invited today to speak about the implications of these monuments on people of indigenous descent, particularly through your knowledge and relationship with the Lakota Sioux tribes. 
Now, before we continue, I feel that it's important to note that the purpose of Cloud9 has always been to highlight artists and the intersection between their creative and spiritual practice. The conversation that we're going to be having today with Justin is similar to the others in this monument series and is still keeping within the Cloud9 theme. However, the difference between this series and previous episodes is that rather than highlighting the artist, we've turned our focus to public works of art such as dedicated monuments. And in this case, we're also going to be talking about Native people who are characterized as team mascots. The founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, once wrote that the arts, crafts, and sciences uplift the world of being and are conducive to its exaltation. Knowledge is as wings to man's life and a ladder for his ascent. Its acquisition is incumbent upon everyone. The knowledge of such sciences, however, should be acquired as can profit the peoples of the earth. Now, this quotation I just shared begs the question, if the purpose of arts, crafts, and sciences is to uplift all of humanity, then what happens when a work of art such as mascots or monuments depresses a certain segment of humanity's population? Does this type of art or approach to art help or hamper humanity's collective progress towards racial unity and justice for all peoples? Now, Justin, you believe that in addition to these monuments and underlying references to colonial and Confederate ideologies, the conversation should be broadened to a wider discussion surrounding mascots. Could you just take a moment to elaborate on this? Sure. I think one question we have to ask ourselves is, what is a monument? What does it serve to do? I would suggest that a monument serves to etch into our collective memory a particular type of history. And uh, there's, there's a handful of scholarship that talks about the difference between various forms of history, mm-hmm. but history as a, as sort of a, a political narrative that allows for that particular narrative to be wielded for something. And so oftentimes when we think of a monument, right, it's creating some type of narrow viewpoint of what history we should be using to sort of mobilize politically. And so oftentimes, all right, if, if we're thinking about monuments that freeze particular histories, then I would suggest that there's a lot of things that do that in our society, including mascots, including, um, you would say, like uh, Lando Lakes, the, the butter had a, an image of, of a native person. Um, you could also say Aunt Jemima, right? Well, I don't know you'd call those, maybe uh, commercial icons, you would say, um, commercialized icons. You can also think of the uh, oftentimes at cigar shops, you might have a, a, a statue of a native person etched in wood. These are all public displays and artifacts of a people that are woven together in a particular fixed way, right? So when we talk about mascots, we talk about the Washington football team. We talk about um, the Atlanta Braves baseball or the Cleveland Indian baseball team. And they depict groups of people in a fixed way where there is no present, there's no future. They depict people in a way that's quite sanitized, right? So when we think of these, uh, let's say, Confederate monuments, or when we, even when we say, uh, when we look at some of the monuments that are not, quote unquote, contested, right? Even the founding um, individuals of our country, usually they're depicted with didactics or text boxes that... Um, show and talk about a non-complicated history, one that's simplified, sanitized, 
Uh, it's easy to talk about amongst young children, but it doesn't fully display or put on display some of the nuances and challenges or maybe some of the paradoxes that we know are present, right? Many of the founders of the United States also had slaves, right? But those monuments don't talk about that complexity of history. Likewise, when we think about monuments, when we think about uh, mascots in an indigenous context, it's not offering a complex rendering of those peoples. Rather, it's the opposite. It's, it's rendering a stereotypical, cartoonish, right? Um, exaggerated features, exaggerated uh, personality and characteristics of an entire people, which we know is a form, and, and the scholarship talks about a form of violence. What is stereotyping, right? Stereotyping is when you see one particular quality of a person and you say that defines you, and stereotyping hurts so much because when you're the object of that stereotyping, you say, wait a second, I'm so much more than what you're just saying I am, and there's no room to move. There's no room to be a full, complex human being. Mascots and monuments, they do the same thing in terms of erasing particular experiences and in terms of flattening uh, one's identity, one's uh, sort of range of lived experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the Good. time to explain that. Now, you've talked about how mascots, unlike Confederate monuments, promote a stereotype depiction of people and cultures who are really alive in the present. These images are constructed by a dominant class who are attempting, as you said, to fix a race and memorialize people as characters. Mm -hmm. They don't speak to or represent the inherent nobility of humankind or regard individuals as a mine rich in gems of inestimable value, as the Baha'i writings mm -hmm. teach us. Part of your research and work has been in exploring the indigenous approach to sovereignty through film and storytelling, as you explained in your introduction. So what do mascots do to a population, particularly in the case of people of indigenous descent, and how they tell their story? and how they see themselves in the past, present, and future? Yeah, great question, great question. So first, I, I just want to mention that in the United States, there's 573 federally recognized tribes, and there's a few hundred that are not federally recognized, and that's just in the United States alone. Each of those tribes have their unique configuration federally with the government, if they're in that arrangement, and they all have their own pasts and cultures. And you could almost think about it as completely different nations. So there's some challenge of even thinking about a unified Native American or First Nations mm. perspective or even a unified indigenous perspective. So I just want to qualify that because mm -hmm. we know that anytime we say there's a singularity, it's at the expense of additional erasure. And the point is not to uh, not be able to speak about these things um, to the point where it, it sort of debilitates the, the, the way that we can think about things in a more complex way, but it's about being sure that you're um, speaking in a way that doesn't erase, again, erase other people's experiences. So I just want to mention that the, the, the insight that I share is my own, and it's, it's out of particular experiences within the Lakota context, but also my own uh, indigenous exploration of my own family context. Right. No, I totally appreciate that. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. When, 
When we talk about the impact of, of these statues and monuments and mascots on, on indigenous peoples, there's so much to talk about. I think I could start where we could talk about um, Judith Butler, a, a feminist theorist, talks about these notions of speech acts, that when you speak something into being, they're akin to acts. And I alluded to it in my introduction where thought precludes or thought comes before action. Right. And so when you think certain ways and when you etch certain thoughts into the collective imaginary, they end up being these acts. And these acts could be actually um, forms of disenfranchisement or say um, uh, they could be seen as violent acts, really. So I, 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 I express that because oftentimes people will attach to the sentiment and they would say, well, you know, if someone was making fun of me, I wouldn't take it that personally and it wouldn't affect my life. Um, I can understand that. However, when it comes to sort of this ingrained stereotyping of certain peoples, it leads to policy that excludes and kills in this case. And so all you have to do is if you look at the Declaration of Independence, if you go into any um, uh, post office in the United States, you'll see two thirds of the way down, it actually makes a reference to savage Indians, right, in the Declaration. So, right from the beginning of the creation of the United States, there was this need to depict Native peoples as savage, as the unruly other, um, as what we as Americans, quote unquote, are not, right? And so, there's this long history of native identity being intimately tied to American identity of what we're not. But at the same time, we have that free spirit. So it's what we're not and what we are. And where this becomes dangerous is um, essentially all of those romanticized depictions of native people exclude a current present for native people, right? So when we talk about native as savage, native as object of study, Native as somewhere um, sort of backwards, uh, not understanding how to uh, cultivate land, which was the initial stereotype when, when um, the colonizers first came to this country. We render, again, we talk about this rendering uh, of, of a raced or rendering of a fixed past. Okay, so just want to also put that out there. So let me talk about the wider effects of this stuff. Um, so I would suggest that statues are really uh, a representation of a Western approach of understanding reality. And so I'll throw out this big word, ontology. Ontology is essentially how we understand reality and then how we plug into it, right? And so when we think of how do we memorialize something, if your listeners, if the listeners here are from different parts of the world, they'll realize that the different ways to memorialize are representations of your own culture, right? Do we memorialize a person, right? Or do we memorialize concepts, virtues, ideas, beliefs? How are we memorializing? So in a sense, it's an artifact of how we view the world and it's a Western view of the world. So when we say we wanna memorialize a particular person, we're memorializing individual qualities that that person may stand for, uh, but we're also memorializing their life and, and sort of a, a non-collective getting at a particular history. And, and I'll just contrast this to uh, what I see within a, a native context. So in some of the spaces that I, I learn and study and, and work with, 
um, there's these beautiful memorial rides. And one in particular I'll talk about is called the Bigfoot Memorial Ride. And that is to uh, memorialize and to remember the Lakota chief, Chief Sitting Bull. And this happened in a December uh, in, in the 1800s um, where Chief was assassinated. And uh, his peoples were, um, they felt the need to flee because they felt that the assassinations and the killings were going to come to them. So they uh, mounted their horses and on foot, they went southward through different reservations. And ultimately, they picked up more and more people and they ended up at a place called Wounded Knee. And we know that the massacre of Wounded Knee, 1890, whatever the history, uh, disputed history may be, the outcome was over 300 Lakota women, older men, and also children were massacred. There were children that were able to escape and run through the creek back up to their home area. And so every year to memorialize not only the, the loss of their ancestors, but also what the Lakota chief stood for, there's a group of horse riders who would start up where the Lakota chief was, and they would start this ride, this, I want to say it's about three weeks long ride from North Dakota through South Dakota to Wounded Knee. They would hold a ceremony, and then they would start on foot to run back to uh, what's called Takini, uh, which is the territory where the children ran back to, which is maybe some 70 miles away, 80 miles away. Every year they do this. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's an enactment of memorialization, right? So there's different types of enactments of memorialization, and they choose not to enact via statue of a particular person, but rather to carry it out, to physically embody that journey from North Dakota to South Dakota and then running back to home. I would say likewise with an indigenous context, the idea of memorializing cultural values, those cultural values were not necessarily encapsulated with just individuals, but they were creative or they're say, maybe you would say uh, creator reflected values. There are values that were given by the creator that we try to and strive to carry out in our lives. So that's why that enactment of the bravery and the loss of life of the ancestors of the Bigfoot Memorial Ride is not about a particular person. And none of these, uh, these rides have sort of this, this individualized memorial to uh, Sitting Bull. So that's on one level. And um, so that would be the level of how memorials reflect a different type of worldview. I would just then then tie up this conversation about statue and depictions um, and give you the notion of ontology, I would say that it limits the types of ways that you can see yourself in the future, right? If your way of thinking about memorialization are enactments, embodied enactments, and you don't see those within the popular context of how you memorialize things. Or conversely, you see memorial being about individual characteristics rather than communal sacrifice. It starts limiting how you even view yourself as a person, but then also how you view your cultural um, viability mm. within that context as well. Thank you so much, Justin, for that detailed explanation. And you brought up enactments, which I really love and I want to learn more about, and I have a few questions in a couple moments, but for the time being, you mentioned memory a couple times in uh, the answer you just shared. So I want to talk about that because 
What informs an imagined future is memory of the past, which is different to history. And a lot of the arguments surrounding the preservation of these Confederate monuments and mascots is that they represent a part of history. But as I understand it, as you've already touched on, history is socially constructed and often represents only one side of a very complex narrative. So where does memory fit into this conversation about preservation and how does memory contribute to a more accurate depiction of the past and also how indigenous people could imagine their future? Yeah, great question. Uh, so a lot of political theorists have looked at history and the role in terms of political mobilization. And some definitions, I'm, I'm drawing from a, a Yale scholar named Jay Winter, he talks about how history is singular and it's usually stitched together through um, some type of authority, mm. right? So it's an authoritative narrative that, that serves particular purposes and these are political purposes. Um, generally, history is understood as sort of this, this empathizing with the victor or right uh, to the victor goes the spoils. Even um, Walter Benjamin talks about this notion of uh, history being again, written by those in power um, and it's really a way that you can fashion a singular political narrative around a historical event. And this is usually when, when, when all of those with lived experience have, have died and then a political entity can come in and craft a narrative. So history is singular and it's usually crafted by uh, a particular powerful political uh, use. So to contrast that, what is memory? Um, memory is often considered as hard truths and painful accounts. Memory can be multiple but specific, um, and it's also infused with emotions and experience. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary talks about it as the perpetuated knowledge or recollection, right? Perpetual, meaning it keeps revisiting, right, this recollection or knowledge. So it changes, it transmutes, it moves. Now, when you put history, a fixed understanding of history, next to a dynamic understanding of memory, what happens? We see that history actually suppresses memory, right? It imposes a particular type of memory on people. Now, okay, so we, we understand that there's a, a, a one-way history. We understand that. But what does it do psychologically to those who've lived through that experience, right? This is something that's not often talked about. So... If there's a lack for memory, if there's a lack for these complex memories of a past, it leads to this feeling of alienation. So you could imagine if, if, uh, if a group of people, like even let's just say Lakota folks were to start talking about the reality of um, what happened at Wounded Knee, they're often met with accusations of lying or um, of exaggeration. And what do you do if you're met with that? Right? It forces you to think that, oh my gosh, am I lying? Am I, uh, did, I, did, I, did I think about it wrong? Did I, were my parents, were my grandparents not truthful? And it just leads to shame and it leads to further alienation. It leads to silence. It leads to disaffection at the very least, right? So if memories can't be shared because they can't be understood by others, Often people might say, well, you're hallucinating or you're exaggerating. And ultimately it leads to not feeling like um, your people's or your individual experiences are being validated or even made 
um, made intelligible, if you will. And so what does that do? Um, I think of it in the sense of, uh, so I was interviewing some, some folks up in Standing Rock around uh, this project called I'm Not a Costume. It's a hashtag, I'm Not a Costume. And we were talking to this um, educator named Jeremy Fields, a Lakota. Uh, he was at Standing Rock, um, but he's a native gentleman. And he's an educator, and he was talking about what happens when you first encounter racism. Or you would even say what happens when you first encounter the, the time where someone says what you're saying is exaggeration and that didn't happen. What do you do? Well, as a child, because you don't have the language to process it, you, you basically just have to swallow it. You have to be silent. You have to say, okay, well, I don't know what to make sense of it, how to make sense of it, so I'll just swallow it. And this is the process of swallowing poison, right? If you have a young child who swallows poison at age six, age seven, and then when they're 20 years old, they might have lung cancer. Is it because of, the, because of the, the, the poison? We don't know. They might have problems with their digestion or their stomach. Is it because of the poison? We're not sure. We know that the poison certainly didn't help the body, right? But we can't say it was directly because of the poison. This is what racism in this erasure does. Mm. It causes you to swallow and second guess who you are and how you are to the point where whether you address it or not, it's gonna affect your body in the future somehow, some way, right? There's been some studies by Stephanie Freiberg that talks about mascots directly related to rates of suicide. Um, in Canada in 2016, the, the Cross Lake Cree Nation had to declare a state of emergency because in two weeks, there were 140 suicide attempts. And this is a community of only 8,000 people, right? So that is to say that these speech acts lead to this deep internalized sadness as a community and as, as individuals stemming from the message that you don't belong, right? That your memories, that your contested histories or your contested and complex memories don't belong in the past. They don't belong in the present, right? And so what does that do? It alienates. It makes one feel that they don't belong in this society or even on this earth. And so one of the really beautiful things um, sort of to kind of like wrap this up and talk about it in, in, in the um, sort of in the present is this thinking of futurisms or how do we think of the future from our limited scope of the present? Um, and I know, and, and I know you know this, but in, in native communities and native scholarship and also in um, African-American studies, there's a strong um, orientation and, and tradition of what's called futurisms, um, which is to imagine a new, mm. a new future based on attempted erasure of the past. Mm. Yeah. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on historical trauma and how an experience that could have taken place like four or five generations ago is still within the genetic makeup of a human being living today and they may not have known what happened but it's still it's persistent within their lived experience yeah. today and the implications of of these acts are just so great far beyond what we can imagine um and it's just so it's so unfortunate to see the lasting effects of it today. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You, you know, I I'm glad you brought that up because you're 
You're absolutely right. And, and we talk about this notion of historical trauma a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an example that I like to turn to, which is quite illustrative of this. Um, so when we grew up, I think a lot of us could remember maybe one time in grade school where there was a kid in your classroom who said something mean to mm -hmm. you. Right. I mean, you could almost conjure up the name of that person who said one mean thing to you, and it might shape a little bit of who you are. Maybe I don't um, like the way my body is shaped. I don't like the way I wear clothes or the way I speak because of this one person saying one thing made a huge impact in your life. Now, what if that person, instead of just doing it once, they did it twice, right? Or they teamed up with their friends to make sure that they did it every week to you. Or let's say they teamed up with the teacher who made sure that every day you were reminded of that, but the teacher was older, so they were actually able to um, do it to your parents as well, or do it to your, your brother who's younger than you as well. And that went on every single day for not just one generation, but two generations, for three generations. In the United States, Native peoples were not allowed to practice Native religion from 1880. 1883 to 1978, right? That's almost four complete generations of being told that what you believe is, in a sense, equated to Satan and the devil, right? And so it wasn't just one occasion that this happened. This was over 20, 20 uh, what, 100 and almost 100 years, right? 25 years per generation, so over four generations. Mm -hmm. And just think about the impact that one unkind word made in your life when you're growing up and then amplify that every day every week multiple generations that is historical trauma it's this deep genetic embedding of being told that you don't belong believing that you don't belong and believing that you are less than human mm -hmm. um, eve tuck and wayne yang talk about what are stereotypes what are the opposite of stereotypes human types right stereotyping eliminates this idea of a full complex human being. Uh, and that's also what historical trauma does. So yes, we, we do carry it with us and it is difficult to shake it. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it takes a long time. And likewise, I think our efforts, it's not gonna happen all within one year, one week or one day, but it's this ongoing mm -hmm. sort of stepping back into human types. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing now, I think, a resurgence of this conversation about about the validity and the ethics behind these these uh, monuments and particularly this conversation we're talking about mascots and, and people and brands are starting to change the way that they represent themselves and and try mm -hmm. to remove themselves from these like these stereotypes um we've spoken a lot about the colonial or western constructs of monuments and memorialization and this places a huge emphasis on the individual or a specific event mm -hmm. in history so what are some of the pitfalls to this approach when mm -hmm. we are commemorating mm -hmm. an individual through a monument and what this kind of represents? Because I know you've already mentioned, and we can talk more about enactments in a second, but the indigenous perspective or way of memorialization is quite different, removed from the individual. So what are some of the pitfalls of focusing on an individual? Well, you could say that largely a Western framework of understanding the world is premised on individuality, or at least understanding that the individual is separate from the collective or separate from the world. And this 
is not something new that 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 a lot of lot of different scholars have thought about this and it largely stems from the enlightenment right in the 1600s where we had the first time we had a, a bifurcation of or a separation of who's a who's a scientist and who's a philosopher right and so when you think of the great philosophers back in the day it's plato socrates aristotle they're the greatest philosophers well who were also the greatest scientists it was Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, so on and so forth. Uh, and it wasn't until the Enlightenment where we started believing that the brain and the mind was separate from the world. And that if you study empirically the, uh, the, the natural world, you can unlock its mysteries. And so that's also the modern sort of birth moment of, of the university, right? At the university level, we automatically said, well, if you believe in, if you want to study religions, your religious study studies, if you want to understand um, the movement of peoples, your, or like the development of peoples, your sociology, and so on and so forth. We took the world and we broke it up into small parts and said, these are all separate, right? And so that was kind of the, the movement towards thinking and centering the individual. You'll also see very interestingly within mm. the, the Catholic traditions and uh, Christian traditions that around this point, you had baptism used to be an immersement of an entire body into water to come out, right? A, a, a rebirth, so to speak. And around this point, the immersion of a full body switched over to just dropping water on the forehead, right? So you see this sort of emergence of the mind and also this emergence of the individual. Around this time, a little bit before this time, the Renaissance in terms of art also took place where you saw that back in the day, you used to have Islamic scholars who would toil over a beautiful painting and they would never depict uh, an individualized face, nor would they put any of their names on the, on the piece because it was a collective, it was a reflection of the creator. And it was so intricate that these, these wonderful artists, these wonderfully skilled artists would actually lose their eyesight working on particular pieces of works, right? And then after the Enlightenment, after the Renaissance, all of a sudden you had individuals signing their names onto things. And the notion of sort of creative brilliance mm -hmm. was individualized rather than seeing this collective reflection of the, of the creator. And so I bring this up because when we think of memorializing, we also have to think of, are we memorializing individual characteristics or are we trying to memorialize qualities and virtues of the creator, right? What are we trying to memorialize? And I would suggest that in thinking about indigenous ways of memorializing, it's not about individualized expressions and manifestations of, of, of divine qualities but rather it's the sort of day-to-day -day carrying out of those divine qualities in our own lives, right? So I think of um, uh, in the Baha'i writings, Baha'u'llah mentions that the, uh, the essence of faith is fewness of words and abundance of deeds, right? Fewness of words and abundance of deeds. So in that way, I think that, and, and so I know that we're talking about indigenous communities and then I just mentioned Baha'u'llah, uh, I was talking to Rashan Dinesh, and he's a, a prominent lawyer up in Canada who's worked closely with a lot of First Nations. And he had mentioned to me that in the 60s and 70s in Canada, upwards a third to even a half of all Baha'is that were enrolled in Canada were First Nations or Indigenous. Certainly that number has shifted as more people have come into the faith. And, um, but that is to say that there's this really intimate relationship, particularly in North America, in the United States and Canada, in Canada with uh, indigenous peoples 
and the Baha'i writings. So I would say that there's some commonality in this notion of collectivity and also of relationships within my understanding of the Baha'i faith and also my understanding of indigeneity and my experiences of indigeneity. And when you think of collective memory, right, what is collective memory? Collective memory done in a relational way would actually avoid the erasure of marginalized experiences. Right? If we were truly taking into account everyone's complex memory of a particular event or instance or something we want to actually put into history, it would be much more of a collective exploration. And this is already starting to be done in many of the memorials in Washington, D.C. and other places in the world where it's not necessarily one particular monument right? But it might be a series of monuments or a series of memories which create a more complex rendition of history. Um, Jay Winter talks about this notion of historical remembrance, right? Which is to complicate a singular history with multiple memories. Multiple memories that could be paradoxical, right? They could be um, complex, they could be counter each other, but you're allowing for this collective memory to take place that doesn't valorize a particular person or an individualized understanding of the world, but rather an interconnected understanding of the world. And so what I really love about the notion of memory and why it maps on, I think, nicely to an understanding of, say, indigenous memorialization is that it's complex and that it revisits, right? The, the Oxford English Dictionary talks about the perpetual recollection. So it keeps coming back and you keep making sense of it and it keeps changing. So then the question is, how do we create memorials that allow for a constant reevaluation and a constant reflection on the characteristics that really embody what that event happened, right? The, the divine and the creator given characteristics mm -hmm, of that. Mm -hmm. How do we create a space for constant reflection, a constant reflection on what are the qualities and characteristics that make us human? And also what do we want to carry on into the future, right? And thinking about it that way mm -hmm. very much complicates a singular statue with one didactic, one text box that talks about one individual person, right? It allows for a community to really put forward these complex memories. Hmm. Does that make sense, Shadi? Yeah, definitely. And it actually ties into my next question. Okay. You shared earlier in great detail the example of the enactment surrounding mm -hmm. the events that took place in Wounded Knee to remember Chief Sitting Bull and those who were killed in the massacre at Wounded Knee. What are some of the ways that indigenous communities, perhaps specific to your understanding of yeah. uh, the Lakota Sioux traditions, Remember the past or memorialize people or events um, that took place in history? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the first thing I think about is, uh, you know, for the, for the Lakota, one of the highest compliments that you can be given is that you're a good relative. And what does that mean, mm. right? It means that when we say we're a mother, when we say we're a brother, a sister, a grandson, there's certain responsibilities that that points to, to the collective, right? So certainly when it comes to memory, when it comes to memorializing, uh, a lot of indigenous folks turn to ceremony. And what is ceremony? Ceremony is a way to commune with the creator. It's a way of bringing that which is 
in, in divine, right? That which is divine into the earth. It's a way of having a conversation with the creator. And many times when we think of and when we enact these, these ceremonies, there's a strong intergenerational aspect to them. Um, so much so that, right, like elders have particular roles within ceremonies. Young people have, have unique ceremonies of their own that are overseen um, and carried out by elders and so on and so forth. Uh, and so this idea of always being in relationship right? Um, the, the, the elder may talk about certain events that may have happened and imbue a sense of responsibility to younger folks to carry out those values and those beliefs in their own lives and then to pass it on to the next generation and so on and so forth and so on. Not to mention this idea of, you know, I'm sure many of you have heard this notion of seven generations, and seven generations prophecy and so on and so forth. And it means many different things. But the way that I really love thinking about it is today when we're thinking about our lives, we have to know that seven generations ago, our ancestors were praying for us and they were thinking about us. Mm-hmm. And likewise, in our daily activities, we also have to pray and think about our seventh generation from today. Right? And so what I say to this is, when I describe that, it's almost a living memorial. It's almost a living ceremony. I mentioned to you that there is really no such thing as religion or no such thing as artwork because the purpose of, you would say, ceremony and the purpose of art was to bring out the qualities of the creator into our daily activities, right? And so also when I mentioned that the, the highest compliment is to be a good relative, What I'm showing there and what I'm pointing to is this lived enactment of responsibility. That lived enactment of responsibility is really at the heart of what what a monument is supposed to be, right? A monument is supposed to remind Mm -hmm. ourselves the best part of ourselves. It's supposed to be our ancestors speaking to us, saying, hey, look where we come from and look where we can go forward. Right? If we take that in a communal sense, mm. if we take that in a sense where we are one human family, then there are enactments of how we are carrying out the responsibility to our children, to our grandchildren, and seven generations from now. So I would say, and I would answer that question, really trying to point towards embodied enactments, less about individualized valorization, but about community revitalization, about carrying and preserving cultural values to the next generation through a familial and sort of interconnected manner and fashion. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really love this idea of memorializing through uh, communal um, practices, through enactment, and this level of creativity that you have um, touched on in indigenous memorializational practices, particularly with the Lakota Sioux. I think there's really a lot that we can learn from from this practice. It reminds me of the hidden word by Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, where he says, let deeds, not words, be your adorning. Now, earlier we spoke about futurism. So I thought that before we close, um, we could reimagine our future for a moment using your knowledge of indigenous history and practices and also the Baha'i faith's teachings as inspiration. What would the future look like to you 
when it came to monuments, memorializations, mm -hmm. and mascots? So as I mentioned, I, I really feel that memorials and mascots are this relic of a particular worldview. And so in thinking about what it could look like into the future, we, I think we have to go back to the structure that's framing this conversation. Um, and so we had mentioned previously about, we talked about critical theory. And um, I know just recently in the United States, there's this attack on uh, critical race theory and even this, this idea of creating um, patriotic education um, and to do away with critical race theory. And, and I'll just bring up this notion because we hear a lot of people talking about critical race or critical gender studies, but we oftentimes don't hear how critical is defined. So when we say critical, it's not um, being judgmental, right? That's not critical. Um, it's also not critical thinking, right? So critical thinking is when you have a puzzle and you think of all the ways to unpack that puzzle. It's very important. It's what we teach our, our children to do. It's what we teach in schools, critically think, right? But when we say critical theory, we're actually pointing to a whole separate tradition from sociology of scholars who think about how the world was created through structures and how the world can be recreated. Right? So you're looking at language, we're looking at the, the ways thought are formed. And that's why when you think of critical gender studies, it's not just looking at the outcomes of gender, but it's looking at how we even come to understand gender in the first place. Right? So it's about structure, how we've come to be where we are through structures of thought and of also of, of institutions and practice. And I bring this up because we are in a Western structure, a Western philosophical framework that valorizes individualism. Right? And so in order to get out of that, um, Baha'u'llah, right, he had mentioned um, this beautiful quotation right, that says, the day is approaching when we will have rolled up this world and all therein and spread out a new order in its stead, right? So the idea of rolling up an old order and spreading a new order, to me, and this is just my interpretation, that is a critical project, a critical theory project of evaluating how our structure came to be and then finding locations and spaces to urge on this new rolling out of a new structure, and so in critical theory and in indigenous studies, some scholars talk about this notion of incommensurability. Incommensurability literally sort of means that one is not compatible with the other. And it points to this tension that many of us are thinking about and are grappling with through this conversation, but amongst many different conversations around race and difference. That is, we envision a new world, but we're mired in this old world. The ideas that we want to see spread through our society of unity, of relationships, of justice, we don't know what that looks like because the world that we are currently inhabiting has very few examples of what it could look like. And so in many ways, I can speculate what it could look like, um, but where I come to sort of locate myself within the scholarly literature is that I'm a critical theorist that points to and motions towards and lays a path towards new spaces where we can envision a future. So I can help us and our generation, we can help us to get closer to the horizon that we may see. 
And when the young people take up the torch and start looking at that horizon, they can see farther and see a new horizon and they can go further, right? We know that we have certain, uh, I would call them heuristics or their shortcuts to learning, right? Within a Baha'i community, a shortcut to learning in terms of community development would be action, reflection, consultation, this cycle, right? We have these different orientations of how we should treat each other. But if you notice, these orientations don't tell us what society specifically looks like. It tells us how to get to a place where we can think deeper about what society looks like, right? And so some of the ideas that I shared today aren't necessarily pointing to a concrete formulation of what monuments can look like as so much it points us to a way to think about how we can think deeper and with more understanding of what monuments could look like if that makes sense so that, that is to say that i'm not necessarily prescribing anything but i would say that what would a society look like if we valued relations if we valued interconnectedness and unity in ways that allowed us to see that what we're trying to actually remember is not about individuals. It's not about a dominant historical narrative, but it's actually to sort of remind ourselves who we are, right? I think the interesting thing about memorials and, and you would say monuments is that not only does it remind us of our past, but it informs a future. So this sort of cyclical understanding of oneself, right? And so when we think of a future, if our past and present has been wiped out, it's difficult to even think of a future. And that's why it's so beautiful when you look at um, in African-American studies and native studies, there's a strong emphasis on futurisms. Uh, and it could be uh, things around sci-fi, right? It could even be something like um, Star, Star Trek, right? Star Trek is an envisioned future where there's actually more understanding and equity, right? And the idea if we have no concrete examples because what we're envisioning is incommensurate with the world that we live in, sometimes we have to use our imagination and creativity to imagine something new that might look like sci-fi or maybe just uh, uh, science fiction, right? But is actually a, an embodied practice of envisioning new political futures, which mm. includes monuments. Wonderful. Uh, you you ask some incredibly insightful and timely questions, Justin. And um, with the comments that you just made, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to bring this episode to a close. Justin, I really want to thank you again for your time today and your insights and reflections. Um, they're incredibly valuable to this very important conversation that we're currently engaged in. So thanks again. Thank you for your time, Shadi, and thank you for your efforts. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iteachings.org, where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>